guys, you're listening to Our Digital Future every Thursday from 8.30am to 9am with me, Ziba Z. This is a show following your um, weekly 8 to 8.30am slot where medicine and fitness is the forefront with Nathan Tang. Thanks to him for um, doing his great show. I love Ellen and laughing. So um, maybe you'll hear some more of him next week. Um, I won't be here next week. I'll be going to Illinois campus for library school. I'll be in my last semester of online in-person session and when you're doing a two-year program with this school you go in person once a semester so this will be my sixth time up in Illinois and at this time of year last year was very cold it was the first time I actually saw snow fall from the sky being from Southern California born and raised I just was not familiar with the Midwest weather especially in the winter so I'm looking forward and I'll definitely be prepared with a lot of extra layers. And this semester, um, storytelling class has been pretty exciting so far. We told a story over the phone lines during our live session. And we're going to be telling stories in class live. And librarians do use storytelling. That is a good part of the job because the students that are young need to learn how to read and even up till their teen years it's really recommended and encouraged for every parent student and like I mean parent librarian and teacher to read to a child about three times a day every day that's really the goal and then another class um, that I'm looking forward to is mu- museum informatics that's been really educational we've been looking a lot at museum websites And we're very lucky to be living in Southern California. We're right by LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And did you know Fridays after 5 with your L.A. County resident ID, it's free? That's the best thing, and they're open till 9. And it's really great to just get lost in the exhibits. You know, they switch up every few seasons. It's a new thing, so go ahead and take a look. But a lot of the um, what we've been learning lately is websites for these museums are used sometimes as a standalone museum so you don't have to go to the museum in person but there's so much great rich content there that is hidden if you don't have a usability test for your website sometimes you don't realize that it's not getting to everyone where it should be and the other last class I'm looking forward to is um, art and humanities librarian information resources so that deals a lot with what here at UCI on the campus you'll be doing is going to a librarian at your library here and getting a research consultation service and any help with a paper they'll help you go to the right databases to get your primary sources your secondary sources and any um, I came across a really great resource doing a homework assignment last night there's a website it's all about English and British women's letters and diaries and it's online the actual photocopy of it the scanning image of the letter as well as um, typed out since it's really hard to sometimes to read old writing or calligraphy cursive um, everyone's handwriting is different they actually have it written out and it's uh, Mary Queen of Scots and different things from like the 1500s 1600s so far back and it's right there 
primary source, a diary. And that's what um, we've also been talking about how stuff like that's been used in social media lately. You can take uh, Twitter and you can do um, a Twitter of a dead person, which some museums and archives and libraries have done. They've taken like John Quincy Adams, I think is one example. They've taken his um, diary and each day on the day, so from years back, but the same day, they'll post something from his diary. And um, I think him or someone similar, they, for some reason, were not going to be motivated to write a really long diary entry. They said, I'm just going to do, like, a couple sentences. So whatever it was fits exactly on Twitter anyways. So then they post it every day. So Twitter can be used for educational purposes and historical reference. Not all just entertainment. Usually when I hear people say, what do you use Twitter for? They say, I'm going to go and look at what... Britney Spears is posting or you know the Kardashians so um so that's what um I'm looking forward to next week and I hope you all stay and enjoy your nice programming here at KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine I've also got a talk for us to listen to we've got some graduate school of library information science specialty speaking series audio. Now this particular one is by Blanca Gordo, Dr. Blanca Gordo. She's a visiting scholar at the Institute for the Study of Societal Issues from the University of California at Irvine. And this was when they did a talk on Information in Society Speaker Series from the 2010 archives at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. This is the digital destitution in the digital age. This goes well for our digital future. That title is excellent, and let's hear what she has to say about it here on um, KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. In the 1990s, uh, an experiment of our advisors. And uh, myself, I worked with my dissertation and PhD advisor is Manuel Castells uh, at UC Berkeley. And, um, and uh, Jerry Feldman was also one of my advisors who's a computer scientist. And these two people were very interested in, for different reasons, wanting to begin to collaborate and work on social issues and technology. So whereas Manuel Castells was thinking about how it was fascinating to see how technology was changing and affecting the social structure. Um, and for us as urban planners, we were engaged in these studies because we wanted to do something about this problem. We believe that research can be used for social change. Um, in particular, my interest and my specialty as an urban planner is I'm, I, I'm an economic development scholar. And I, and, I, and I think a lot about how this strategy can be used to address urban poverty. And I'm also interested in inequality structures. Um, so it's exciting to see students like yourselves because um, uh, for us, we were an experiment in the sense we came up with some seeds, some theoretical seeds, some ideas that I think are, would be flourishing in the, what you, in my view, become the next wave of this kind of research um, that is very necessary. So for an idealistic student like myself who thought that research um, could um, inform 
the design of public policy that could at least, if not help, not recreate a problem that, or complicate further uh, a social and institutional process of exclusion in our society. That was my ideal when I first started studying. And Manuel Castells convinced me that, yeah, if we, are, if we do not uh, think about understanding in a critical and in-depth way the ways in which um, the, the, the effects of technology uh, affect the low income in society considering the social conditions underway and the inequality um, in place, then we really couldn't figure out solutions to the problem. Um, so I um, decided that I tried. And I thought I was going to be able to convince them that um, actually technology could be a useful tool for the low income and could be enable social, social change. And so I decided to do that in a 25-page paper. That it's just going to resolve the problem. I'm just going to tell you that this is a problem, this is a solution, and that's it. And that has become like a 12-year study um, up to this point, and it's still developing. So this is a really good time for innovation. Um, and there is plenty of work for each and every one of us to create, uh, create a, a scientific, make a scientific contribution. And um, time is of the essence, and we want to also make a social contribution through our academic research. So I just wanted to say that um, the reason why this type of research is important today is because um, today. Uh, and during the Obama administration, the digital divide has taken renewed public attention, it's taken a break in between the Clinton administration and the Bush administration. During the Clinton administration, this was a vital problem that needed to be addressed. The logic changes when the Bush administration enters. And you could see the shifts in the re national reports conducted by the U.S. Department of Commerce under the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, where they accounted for uh, a gap um, in the technology ownership rates of internet and broadband and uses. And so it was a huge problem and a lot of investment, well, it wasn't a lot, but some investment was made um, to uh, to institute technology within three institutions, which is the, the public school educational system, and so there's this calling about having a in every classroom, and having access at the public library, and later the community technology organization called Community Technology Centers, um, which is what my, my, uh, my research is focused on. Um, the reason why this research continues to be important is because today the Obama administration has renewed that, that interest and has, uh, through the American um, Recovery Act of 2009, under the Title VI of the Broadband Technology Opportunities Program, $7.2 billion are being distributed and allocated to address broadband in different ways. The majority of the money is going into uh, laying up a fiber optics, 
be developing that. The intent is to break market bottlenecks and create jobs, generate economic activity. And some of it, too, is to uh, begin to, to increase the demand of technology within uh, what we call underserved populations and places. Um, and, and, and it matters for Illinois, too, because on September 28th, um, in Springfield, Illinois, the, there was about a dozen, I believe, um, recipients of this fund um, that um, there, was, there was about a dozen recipients that got together on September 28th to begin to discuss the allocation and distribution of these resources um, and the implementation of technology plans. So um, money is being spent and um, it has before. Um, and here's an opportunity, I believe, that in the 1990s, uh, some of us were examining these set of issues, and one of the lost opportunities, I believe, that is still an opportunity today is to develop solid theoretical frameworks of the digital divide. So we need to think about the digital divide beyond just a metaphor and a descriptive uh, idea of of saying what the inequality is, and we need to think about it as we work on it as a concept, a theoretical concept that could be scientifically grounded on the current reality. It's, it's one of the things that I want to tell the students, and here's an opportunity to do that. Okay. The reason, uh, the reason I became important, like I said, I'm always thinking about how can we solve the problem of poverty and reverse inequality and resistance. So the internet and technology does not uh, erase the spatial social structure. It merely reveals it. And I just want to contextualize when I studied my study um, in the 1990s, I had a specific question. During the 1990s, there was a public debate about is there a digital divide um, and can there and should there be anything done about it? Um, my particular interest was not about whether or not, but the question that I had that brought me to this work was under which conditions, through what social process, and under what governance structures could members of ethnic social groups that are primary Latino and Black living in poverty benefit from the use of information technology. Um, I am interested in development, and when I say development, by that I mean education, I mean income generation, and wealth uh, generation as well. So here's a conference in the United States, and what I wanted to show you is how we have, um, one of the things that some of these digital divide studies claimed was that, um, you know, some of these civic programs were um, generating benefit and they talked about certain outcomes about why poor people didn't benefit or benefited, but they did not provide us with um, uh, a description of the inputs in the structure of these programs that created and generated these outcomes. Um, and so they did not also take account of the context and social conditions under which people uh, live and or how the community mechanism was structured to address that. And I just wanted to show that I was interested in understanding inequality. And I think in my work, well not, I don't think, I am claiming in my work that it is the problem of the digital divide is still about inequality. 
the only thing that has changed is the process of inequality, the mechanism that determines advantage for some and disadvantage for others. Um, and that in any kind of study that we conduct, we take note of the context that we're operating under. Um, I also wanted to point out that the family income gap is, is high. And oh, I didn't point out that the students who, who are, may not know is that this is the inequality gap in California. So the Californians had a higher uh, inequality gap than the rest of the United States. And incidentally, California was a state that created the technological revolution. And a lot of different states were looking at California at that time as a model for development and also for uh, digital divide solutions. So when I had that question, I wanted to select a case where we can learn from that. Initially, I thought that I was going to study how, um, and how, the, how technology could generate benefit, and I was going to do so by looking at the public schools that had integrated technology, and then I was going to um, you know, run regressions and use the data sets that were available. And when I followed that, that logic, I found that um, what I would find is that the, t the effect would be determined by the type of institutional uh, rules, and if there was already inequality within those institutions, then we could predict why people didn't benefit um, and, and wouldn't get at uncovering how they could. Um, since there wasn't a, uh, since since there isn't, um, since there were limits in terms of the access to education, um, access to, uh, to technology uh, within the school, they were limited in terms of who they served, and there were, you know, the, the, the function of the public school is basically to provide education, right? So they were just getting used technology, but without changing the, the, the pedagogy of incorporating the critical pedagogy, it would not make a difference. So, uh, and the public libraries provided uh, provided access, but it was limited by time as well. And uh, so a lot of the uses of technology within the school were limited. Am I losing you guys? <laughs> okay. So, one of the things that I found was that um, I wanted to uncover, uh, I wanted to uncover what the benefits were and when I started looking at community technology civic experiments that were underway, that were uh, funded by, by, by government and philanthropy, um, and, I, and then again, I was going to study the impact of community technology on the poor. And as I entered this field, I found that there was no comprehensive data set available and there was not a model, that this was in fact a new type of organization that was happening. But people named it community technology programs that were going to address the digital divide, but there was no model and nobody could identify how these were structured. So um, there was no generalizable. And I actually happened, was lucky enough to look that plugged in because um, I had heard about it and it was nearby and it was in Silicon Valley. Um, and I started to look at the, at, at the organization to get some sense about what were the kinds of questions and issues that we could raise. And, um, uh, at that time, the digital divide was still not a concept, a public, publicly recognized problem. Um, and as I looked at community technology efforts, um, and I looked at a survey of about 300 
with 50 organizations nationwide, and I and I found that everybody was pointing to plugged in. So I began to look at plugged in again. Um, but I found that people were also uh, claiming that this organization had influenced the kind of work that they were conducting, um, and, um, and everybody named them. Uh, President Clinton also visited them during his campaign, uh, the Digital Divide Program campaign. Um, but nobody could tell us what plugged in, why plugged in was so successful in ABLE and what their program was that created uh, solutions um, such as the kids uh, in East Palo Alto finding employment opportunities um, and, and, uh, and, and engaging the community in ways that, that generated benefit. Um, and also, uh, so I, want, I found that I needed to create um, a research design that would help me identify, I think it had these reverse. Mm -hmm. All right, let me change it. Okay. And so for those students um, that are starting a new process-oriented research, I think it's a very good uh, possibility for getting at issues that are uh, uh, important to public policy today. And um, like I said, this is a time to ground a theoretical framework that gets at the uh, at how the digital divide operates on the ground. Um, I found that I needed to look at the organization. I wanted to examine, uh, select a case that was well structured to address the question that I had, and I wanted to uncover what kinds of benefits could be could generate, ben what kinds of programs could generate benefit for the low income. Um, and one of the things that I would like to stress to the students is how important it is for us to conduct um, research and uh, rely on rigorous methods in terms of connecting the questions that we raise with the methods that we employ and the data that we use. In, in this case, there was nothing. Um, and so I had to, well, presumably <laughs> didn't know there was nothing. But there was, there was nothing in terms of a data set that would help me or a research method that would help me identify a community technology center that, that, that would provide valid and reliable solutions because they were well-structured and information-rich to provide um, solid and reliable answers to, to, the, to the issues that were being raised. Everybody looks a little bit puzzled. Christian, were you going well, I think I think I wanted to I wanted to I don't know if um, the way that I was structuring was working, but one of the things that I wanted to say is through the process of conducting empirical research in this community center um, plugged in, um, I, I I found that um, it was important to, do, to think about what theoretical framework I was using to identify what the, what the problem of the digital divide was. And I'm going to say that how I think the digital divide for me is that we need to think about the digital divide not just as uh, people who have internet, people who don't have internet, people who have broadband and don't have broadband, but rather 
the digital divide is really about the difference between, as from a sociological perspective, the digital divide is about the difference between those who are able to have the opportunity or not to participate, compete, or prosper in knowledge-based economies and network society. And so the ability to manipulate the productive function of technology is a key and necessary component into this process. And um, one of the things that I also want to stress is that to get at what, what, the, what the digital divide effects are, are, it's important to think of technology not just as a tool. So that there was Blanca Gordo. She was part of the Information and Society Speaker Series at the Guestless Information and Society Speaker Series. She's from Berkeley up north in California, and she was talking about the digital divide here on Our Digital Future, Thursdays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. This has been another episode. Stay tuned next week as we will have a great substitute in for you. And stay tuned now for some great more public affairs programming. We've got nonprofits for us with Deanne every Thursday as well from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. where she's going to talk about the world of nonprofit organizations. Stay tuned, KCI.